Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And before we jump into that, let me just, uh, by way of introduction, say that the listener's commentary is designed to provide clear, down-to-earth Bible teaching in the language of everyday life to help you understand the Bible, not just so you can understand the Bible, but so you can follow Jesus right where you live every day. And we're giving this away for free because we believe that everyone should have access to the life-giving wisdom of the scriptures and the life-giving message of Jesus. And so it's provided for by a whole team of supporters who make this possible through their generosity and their prayers. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, there's a link down in the notes below, or you can swing over to listenerscommentary.com, click the give button, and you can set up a one-time or a monthly recurring donation right there. All right, let's jump into Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And let's set that in context before we jump into the details. From chapters 5 through 7, the author of Hebrews has carefully explained Psalm 110, verse 4, to, so, to show that Jesus is not only king but also priest, and not just any priest, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now what he's ready to do is show why he explained all of that. As he noted in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12, a new priesthood necessitates a new law or a new covenant. And he, he again said in 7.22 that Jesus is the guarantor of that better covenant. Well, that's what he's been building up to. So now he's ready to dive into that theme altogether. So here, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, he continues the explanation by saying that as the messianic high priest, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. That's really important. Since he's the high priest promised uh, in Psalm 110, verse 4, Jesus is also the mediator of a new covenant. And this is really beginning the culminating section of Hebrews. In other words, Hebrews 8.1 through Hebrews 10.18 is the theological culmination, the theological climax of the book. In fact, if you look at the overview chart of the book of Hebrews that's available inside the study hub, what you'll see is the book moves this way. It's like it moves from introducing the Son and who He is. The Son is Jesus. And then it goes to show that the Son is a high priest. And then it moves into showing that the Son is a high priest of a better covenant. Well, that's where we have arrived here, beginning now in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. And so he, he says this. He says, Now, the main point in what has been said is this. And the sense of this word, main point is not to summarize the previous point. Sometimes we use that phrase in our language, main point, to mean, let me just summarize what I previously said. But that's not really the idea of this word. This word that's translated main point means the chief point or the crowning point that is to be made. In other words, here's what I'm building up to. And so what he's about to say is the crowning point of the argument so far in the book of Hebrews, specifically the argument about the high priest. So uh, the main point, the crowning point of what I have said is this. And he says, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, 
and not man. And so he now is moving towards this idea of serving in the true tabernacle and thus inaugurating a new covenant. And this chapter is going to focus specifically on the new covenant idea. Uh, just a couple notes here. Notice what it says that he has, this high priest has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. One, I just love the description of God as the majesty in the heavens. Jews, in an effort to make sure that they would not uh, take the name of God in vain, had various ways that they would uh, speak about God without saying the name Yahweh. In fact, oftentimes when they would be reading the scripture, well, not oftentimes, every time when they'd be reading the scriptures, and they came to the four consonants that represent God's name that we translate as Yahweh, they wouldn't pronounce it. They would say Hashem, which means the name, or they would say Adonai, which means Lord. Um, and so they had various ways of getting around speaking the name of God, and it was an effort to really honor and respect his name. And so the author of Hebrews here describes God as the majesty in the heavens. And he says that Jesus, as high priest, is now his right-hand man. He has taken his seat at the right hand of God on the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so he is a high priest who also reigns as king, as God's right-hand man. And as priest and king, he serves, uh, the author says here, in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle. And the word translated serves here is litergos, not diakonia. Oftentimes the word servant or serve in uh, the New Testament is a translation of the word diakonia or diakonos or one of those uh, words from that word family. But this is litergos, which is the word that's almost exclusively used for priestly activity in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Jesus serves like a priest in the true tabernacle and the true sanctuary. And when he says true, that doesn't mean as opposed to false. True here means real. That is, it's not the copy. And we'll see the word copy show up in verse 5. So he's serving in the original, the authentic one, of which the earthly one is a copy. That's the idea. And he's serving in the true tabernacle and sanctuary. The word sanctuary is literally holy things in Greek. But in the, again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this particular phrase that could literally be translated holy things refers to the most holy place when we're talking about the tabernacle. So he serves in the true tabernacle and he's able to go into the inner room, the sanctuary, the most holy place in the tabernacle. All of this is going to be explained very shortly in chapters 9 through 10. Uh, so he's just introducing this now, and it will occupy his attention for the next couple of chapters. And also notice that this, this true tabernacle and true sanctuary is the one that the Lord set up, not man. That is, it's not of this world. It's not earthly. It's not man-made. It's heavenly. It's from heaven. It's the true one. In heaven. So Jesus is a minister in the true heavenly tabernacle, and he's the high priest who can enter the true and heavenly most holy place. And again, all that's going to be explained and amplified in chapters 9 through 10. So first, before he jumps into that in chapters 9 through 10, he's going to go on to talk in general terms about Jesus' ministry a bit and compare it to the ministry of the priest under the 
old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. So he says in verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. This particular verse kind of works like your classic syllogism, right? All priests offer sacrifices. Christ is a priest. Therefore, Christ must offer a sacrifice. That's the way it works. And he's going to explain that again in what comes. This is all kind of introduction and setup for what he wants to say in chapters 9. And so we're going to get to that. We're going to get, in other words, to what Jesus had to offer in in chapter 9, 11 and following. But first, the author just wants to talk about his ministry in general and how it deals with the true tabernacle and how it is uh, what brings in the new covenant. And so in verses 4 through 6, what we have is one long sentence that makes a point of contrast concerning Jesus as high priest and what he has to offer with the old priesthood. That's really what's going on in verses 4 through 6. It It's uh, a kind of on the one hand and on the other hand type of construction. That's the way it is organized. It claims that Jesus' ministry and his offering is more excellent than the ministry of those according to the old covenant law. So on one hand, the author will say, if his priesthood were on earth, he, he wouldn't have a ministry because there's already priest to do that. There's already a copy tabernacle for that. But on the other hand, if his ministry is uh, heavenly and part of the new covenant, well, then it's more superior. That's how verses four through six work. That's kind of the point he's making. So verse four says, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. So this is the first half. Uh, On the one hand, If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. The Levitical priests do that, right? There are already priests to do that. There are those who offer gifts according to the law. The law is the old covenant. The old covenant is the law. They're all tied up together. So the Levitical priests carry out their ministry according to the law. They do so in uh, a copy of the true tabernacle. So that's what he says in verse 5. There are already those who offer these gifts, verse 5, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Notice those two words, copy and a shadow. This is the point of contrast with the word true up above, that Jesus serves in the true tabernacle and sanctuary, not the copy, not the shadow, right? The Levitical priests in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, well, they serve in the copy. So the tabernacle on earth was a copy. It was also a shadow. That is, it's not the substance. It's not the thing that casts the shadow. There's something greater, more substantial, that is is casting the shadow of which the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant offerings and the Old Covenant priesthood and the Old Covenant tabernacle was merely a copy and a shadow. Now, where does the author of Hebrews get this idea? Is he just making this up? Well, no. He actually gets it from a careful reading of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Look what he says in the rest of verse 5. He says, Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. So now we're going back to the story of Moses and Israel and the instructions for the tabernacle and building out the tabernacle. So back then... Uh, In the days of Moses, when God gave him in those instructions, here's what God said to him. He says, see that you make all the things by the pattern 
which was shown to you on the mountain. Notice that word pattern. That's the idea of copy and shadow. This is where he's getting it. This quote is from Exodus 25, 40, and it suggests that there is a pattern, a, a original of which the earthly is a reproduction of some kind, right? Like the earthly tabernacle is a copy and a shadow, a reproduction of some greater reality of which there's already a pattern. And so the earthly one points towards something greater than itself. Now, it's possible that the original readers, right, Jewish Christians, uh, may have thought that, man, this, this new thing that we're a part of now in the Messiah is just not as great, not as impressive, maybe even defective, because there was no elaborate ceremony. There was no temple or tabernacle. Uh, there was no, like, literal priesthood and all of that. They may have felt like, man, without an earthly shrine and without an earthly priesthood and without all the the rituals of the old covenant that we grew up with, this just doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem as great. It maybe seems less than or defective in some sort of way. Uh, that's, that's possible that maybe they thought that. We don't know for sure. But what the author of Hebrews here is doing is, is trying to help them realize, look, when you read the instructions there in Exodus 25, it makes it clear that there's some sort of greater reality that this was all pointing towards, of which this is a mere reproduction and copy. Well, what we're a part of now is the greater thing. We're a part of the substance that casts the shadow, the real thing, of which this was merely a, a reproduction. And so the greater thing, the author of Hebrews wants them to see, is the ministry of Jesus. And so he says in verse 6, but now, so then, in the days of Moses, there was a copy and a shadow, but now he, Messiah, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry to the extent that he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And so Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. A mediator is one who intervenes or goes between two parties. He's, he's helping them come together so that they can be reconciled. They can work together and move towards a common goal or resolve a disagreement. And that's who Jesus is. He's the mediator of a better covenant than that old covenant. And it's been enacted on better promises. Notice the repetition of the word better. Combine that with more excellent. All of this is to emphasize the superiority of Jesus's ministry and the covenant he inaugurated. It's more excellent. It's better. And to support this idea that he is the mediator of a better covenant, the author of Hebrews then turns to a well-known Old Testament text from the prophets, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. And he's going to quote a, a rather long passage out of Jeremiah 31. In fact, it's the longest single citation of an Old Testament text anywhere in the New Testament. And so he quotes it here at length in Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. And he's actually going to quote it again at the end of this whole section in Hebrews 10, 15 through 17. And he won't quote the whole thing there, but he'll quote a good chunk of it in Hebrews 10, 15 through 17. These are the bookends of this climactic moment, uh, this climactic part of the book of Hebrews. Um, and so before we read the whole thing here, uh, let's just remember the context of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was writing 
in the face of Babylonian exile. And so it's coming to the end of the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. If you're not super familiar with uh, Old Testament chronology and the story of the Bible, I've got a Bible survey course in the study hub that will actually uh, give you a uh, kind of an overview of the biblical story and help you understand how that fits together. And so Jeremiah was part of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is already destroyed. And they're on the cusp of Babylonian exile. And the words here in Jeremiah 31 that are going to be quoted here um, provide hope to the exiles and to uh, the Jews that are left behind in Israel that God hadn't given up on his purposes for Israel that he would fulfill his promises. And he would do that by bringing in a new covenant, a new covenant that was actually better than the old. Um, One that the Jews would actually be able to keep. One that would actually uh, bring about better promises. And many of the, the Jews of the first century longed for this, looked for this. They knew that the final chapter in their story had not been written. And they were waiting, and they were praying, and they were hoping for the new covenant to come. And the author of Hebrews, in quoting this here, contends that Jesus is the one who ushers in this long-awaited new covenant um, since the days of Jeremiah. And so, He says this in verse 7, he says, For if that first covenant, uh, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, if that first covenant had been free of fault, no circumstances would have been sought for a second. The very fact of exile, the very promise of a new covenant that shows up in Jeremiah 31 actually indicates some sort of deficiency in the original covenant. The fact that that they failed to keep it, that they went away into exile, that, that God, through the prophet, promised a new covenant indicates there was a need for something different, and that means the first one was deficient. Now, where did the problem lie? Well, the problem didn't lie so much with the wisdom of the covenant as it did with the people of the covenant. And so verse 8 says, For in finding fault with the people, he says, notice that, the, the fault is with the people. That's where the problem lies. Uh, this is the same point the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, when he says that the law was weak because people are fleshly and fallen. That was the, the, the fault of the law. That was the deficiency was it could not change the fallenness and fleshiness of, of human beings. And so it gave good laws, but it was laws that people in their fallenness failed to adhere to. So there needed to be a new covenant to address that deeper problem in human beings. And so God promised one. And that's where Jeremiah 31 comes in. And so here now in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning here in the middle of verse 8, the author is going to quote, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following at length. Let me read the whole thing so you can hear it. And then I'll go back through and just make a few comments explaining some things out of Jeremiah 31. So it says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will bring about a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, 
and I did not care about them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach each one his fellow citizen and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful toward their wrongdoings, and their sins I will remember no more. Now, keep the original context of Jeremiah in mind. The nation of Israel had divided into two after Solomon's reign, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Hence the reason you get in this passage, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Israel had been destroyed in 722 BC. And then from about 606 to 586 BC, a series of invasions from Babylon had laid waste to Judah and the people were carried away into exile. But through various prophets, God had promised to restore them to the land and that he was going to bring about something new and something better in the days ahead. And Jeremiah states that here as a new covenant for all of God's people. And it was promised to be better than the original. Better promises. That's the idea that the author of Hebrews has already pointed out. So let's go back down through this text and just highlight a couple things. So the text says, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant uh, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Those two parts that made up the one kingdom of Israel. He says, it's not going to be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the old covenant, right? The Exodus is described here as God taking them by the hand leading them out of the land of Egypt, bringing them to Mount Sinai, and starting a covenant with them. And he says it's not going to be like that one. It's going to be different in some ways from that. Why? Well, he tells us why in verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care about them. And so the reason it's going to be different is they didn't keep it. And he says, I did not care about them. That translation, I think, is unhelpful. I did not care about them. In our language, to care about somebody means to love them. And that's not at all what this means. Uh, it's the word care here is more the idea of disregard. It doesn't mean God didn't love them. It means because they re refused to keep his covenant and remain faithful to his covenant, he disregarded them. That's the idea. He allowed them to go into exile. That's exactly what it entailed. Rather than deliver Judah from Babylon, he sent them away into exile because they broke his covenant. So that's the idea. Since they didn't keep his covenant, he allowed them to go into exile rather than to deliver them. That's the point. And so just wanted to clarify that because that's really important because the language, at least of this translation, I think is less than helpful. And so how is this new covenant going to be different that he's going to make? Well, this is what he says in verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So when he makes the new covenant, here's how it's different. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Those four phrases describe... Uh, in some ways, how this new covenant is going to be new, how it's going to be different. And it's important to, to understand that people under uh, the old covenant could memorize the law, right? They could have it in their mind. They could have it in their heart by memorization. Um, 
Psalm 119 emphasizes that. Your word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so it's not that they couldn't have it in their mind and they couldn't have it in their heart. This has less to do so much with location and it has more to do with regeneration, this theological idea of God giving people a new heart. Um, Remember, the fault was with the people. The human material that the law was working with was fallen and fleshly. So when he says, I will put my laws in their mind and I will write them on their hearts, what he's really describing is regeneration. I'm going to give them a new heart. As the prophet Ezekiel Another prophet uh, that writes during the exile, uh, Ezekiel described that God is giving people a new heart. He would remove their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh, and they would actually keep his laws. This is the same idea being described here. And so uh, the Old Testament law did not provide for that. The Old Covenant didn't give them this new heart. This is what's going to be new under the New Covenant. The author of Hebrews then continues to quote the passage, and it goes on to say, And they will not teach each one his fellow citizen, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their wrongdoings, and their sins I will no longer remember. Uh, In one sense, Israel, under the old covenant, knew God, because God had called them to himself, and he had revealed himself to them. But it was a national identity, and it was sort of a national knowing. And it's very clear when you read through the Old Testament story that the, those that were actually faithful to Yahweh, that knew him, loved him, sought him, that, it, that was a remnant among the people of Israel. And so even though the nation was his covenant people, And even though they had been given his laws, being a part of that people did not necessarily entail a personal commitment to him. And so it was a small minority that only knew that. Now, under the new covenant, the point being made here is that each individual member of the covenant community of God's people would actually know God personally, that that's the way you enter into it. That's what's entailed in it is a in a personal knowledge of God. And that's why you won't have to say to your fellow covenant community member, know the Lord, because they will all know me, he says. So it's not merely a national acknowledgement of Yahweh as God and uh, Yahweh's covenant. It is a personal knowledge of God and his covenant. And notice that the next line begins with four, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoings and their sins I'll remember no more. So four indicates that this is the basis for all the other promises of the new covenant. Knowing God, a new heart with the law written on it, where you have a heart that is enabled to do God's uh, word, all of that is based on God's mercy and being merciful towards their wrongdoing and uh, not remembering their sins any longer. And that's the language of forgiveness. And while forgiveness was provided for under the Old Covenant, the author of Hebrews is going to go on very shortly to show that Jesus' offering of himself actually provides real cleansing, final cleansing, ultimate cleansing, eternal redemption, a depth and a quality of forgiveness that indeed was totally different than what the Old Covenant provided for. Now, after quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, then the author returns to make the point that he began the quote with, that the promise of the new covenant indicates a problem with the old covenant. And so once the new covenant arrives, 
Well, the old, old covenant's job is done. Its day is over and thus it is obsolete. And so in verse 13, he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete is growing old and is about to disappear. And so he notes that when God, he, in verse 13, had made note of or promised a new covenant through Jeremiah, well, what's the effect of that? The effect of that is he's made the first one obsolete. Uh, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is about to disappear. And so for the original readers, the new covenant has come. In Jeremiah's day, it was looking forward to the future. But by the time the author of Hebrews writes this, well, the new covenant has come in and through Jesus. It's not just a promise for the future. Now it's a pre present reality. And the implication of that is the old covenant is passé. In fact, he describes it as obsolete. The idea of that word is aging out. And then he really a synonym to that. He says, and growing old. It's outdated and outmoded. That's the idea. It's been... Uh, set aside now because something new and improved has come that is significantly better. And what does that mean? Well, it means that the old covenant, notice he says, is about to disappear. I think that phrase is intentional and important. It doesn't suggest that, that it has disappeared. It's about to, which I take that to indicate that the, the book of Hebrews was written before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed and the old covenant could actually no longer be carried out as it was designed and intended because there was no temple and the Jews no longer had a place to carry out the Levitical priesthood and Levitical temple worship. And so it is outdated, outmoded, and it's on its way out. And so... Since Jesus is the high priest that was promised and the messianic king, that indicates a change of covenant. That means the new covenant promised in Jeremiah has come. And that means the old covenant's day is done as the covenant for God's people. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to go on and explain in detail and amplify all of this in the ensuing paragraphs between chapters 9 and 10. But for now, he's introduced this idea and this theme, now he's ready to unveil and unpack that more fully in what lies ahead. Before we leave this, however, let me just offer just a couple thoughts on this idea of the new covenant. Um, if what the author of Hebrews has said is true, and we believe in Jesus it is true, then that means there is a new reality that is greater than the old reality. What is true for God's people now in Messiah is greater than and better than what was true for God's people in the Old Testament. Um, there are things about this new covenant that are better and different. And he lists some of those here. A uh, personal knowledge of God, a personal commitment to him, a new heart with a new ability to keep God's laws, a kind of forgiveness where uh, sin is completely removed and amnesty is completely given and there is no longer any remembrance of sin. These are better promises that make the new covenant better. And if you are in Christ, then these are the promises that you get to enjoy on a daily basis because God has formed his covenant in and through Jesus. And we'll see in the ensuing paragraphs some of the, the ways that um, is explained by the author of Hebrews and some of the implications of what that means for us as we seek to follow Jesus.